weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, one might have romanticized the thought of going off the grid and living a more simple life. Let's face it, the everyday grind of our structured lives was at a breaking point anyway before life came to a crashing halt. But should you still dream of an easygoing lifestyle, there is a little paradise off the beaten path. At a quick glance of a map of Florida, you might miss it. Dog Island is approximately six and a half miles long and up to three quarters of a mile wide, encompassing 1,842 acres. It is located in the northwestern Florida Gulf Coast, just three and a half miles offshore from Carabelle, Florida. As small as the island is, its history is vast. There is evidence of human occupancy on the island dating back over 8,000 years and the presence of a 9th century canoe is a testament to prehistoric mariners on the island. It was rediscovered by the French in 1536, who gave it its unique name Dog Island, or Isle des Chions, because according to different legends, one, wild dogs were found on the island, two, the island resembles a crouched dog, or three, the early ships put their common sailors, known as dogs, on the island before docking on the mainland so they could not jump ship. During the 17th and 18th centuries, the barrier islands became a haven for piracy and smuggling. The surrounding area is also notorious for shipwrecks. On February 16, 1766, a French merchant brigantine en route to New Orleans wrecked 300 yards east of Dog Island in a great storm. And in 1799, the Royal Navy purchased HMS Fox, a 14-gun British schooner, only to see it wreck later that year between Dog Island and its neighboring St. George Island. In 1899, a hurricane crossed over the Florida Keys into the Gulf of Mexico, sinking ships and destroying the town of Carabelle. The remains of 15 ships from that devastating storm later washed ashore in 2018 during Hurricane Michael. Not just a place for pirates, canine occupants, and shipwrecked crewmates, Dog Island also served military purposes. During the Civil War, it was a Union Navy base for staging the blockade of Apalachicola. And during World War II, it was part of Camp Gordon Johnston and was used for amphibious landings and airdrops. After World War II, Jeff Lewis, a Florida businessman, saw its potential as a vacation area and paid $12,000 for the island. Which brings us to our guest today, who happened to be perusing the internet for off-the-beaten-path destinations and happened across our little island of intrigue. So my husband and I like to do this thing that's called vacation. We call it vacation porn. We like to look at places where we would love to visit, but have no real hope of ever, of ever going there. My husband read a, an article in the New York Times travel section. It was a really, really old article. And he talked about Dog Island. And at that time, still operating was the Pelican Inn, which is the one and only business enterprise that ever existed on the island. We were kind of hooked at that point. That was Laura Valeri. She's an award-winning writer, journal editor, and professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University. I met with Laura to talk about her latest book, After Life as a Human, that documents her personal journey on Dog Island. 
This remote destination is part nature preserve and only accessible by airplane or boat. She describes it as amenity-deprived and hurricane-prone, where pelicans rule, residents are resourceful, and human ambition is suspect. For Laura, this little piece of primitive paradise was reminiscent of a place where she spent her summers as a child. When I was a child and I lived in Italy, my parents had found this tiny little undeveloped spot in the island of Sardinia. And we went there for, I, I want to say, about 10 summers. We would spend about two months a year. It had a, a, a very strong impact on me. Those were some of the happiest memories of my life. And that part of Sardinia was scarcely populated. It was hardly anybody there, even just to go to the supermarket you had to plan for two weeks because it was like a three-hour ride up with like really dangerous mountain passes and i and i think that like when i heard about dog island i was like oh i have to go there i ha I have to see if it's like sardinia in some way um it actually wasn't it was different but it was a similar experience in that i was really looking for something that wasn't quite as roughing it as, you know, going camping in a tent and bringing your lanterns and so forth, but still have a kind of a, an experience where there's a lot of solitude, you're alone, and it's really about being in nature and being present. It's been described as paradise lost, yet it seems to be hard to maintain life for an extended amount of time because of how remote it is and the extreme limited resources you know, it's it's not a city sustained by a local government. It's an island governed right. by its own residents. So it's the very thing that draws people there is the reason why people leave. Who were some of your favorite characters on the island? I know you said mostly, for the most part, people kept to themselves, but you got to know a few people. Rusty was definitely... Rusty was the person who owns the boat fleet that if you're a resident or if, some, if you're someone who wants to visit the island... You can go through him either to make a reservation for a boat that will take you to the island or for anything else. But he was literally legendary because everyone we talked to, if you, what do you need? Do you need, you ran out of water and you don't have time to go to the mainland? Talk to Rusty. You need your washing machine repaired or replaced? Talk to Rusty. And then the fact that he had this, like the way that he maneuvered this boat, I, I swear to God, it was like so obvious that he had done this all of his life, you know, he was just spinning it around like it was a dirt bike and <laughs> everything was absolutely perfect. His maneuvers were absolutely perfect. And then we were choppy in this choppy sea. He had his feet lifted up on the, you know, on the board and, and just kind of like relaxing back, not at all concerned and, you know, incredibly smooth ride, an absolute sailor through and through. So I really like as a character for a book, I think he's he's just phenomenal. It was great. One one other thing you had said, I think when you went back or you were watching the news, there was kind of a scary moment where that what was it, a cat four, a cat five hurricane that was coming through the island and one guy stayed because I think people don't realize like there's no hospital, there's no police, yeah. there's nothing on the island. And he decided to weather it out in the house he built, right? Yes, Bradley Shanks was somebody that I got in contact with much later, but five years later, I was lucky enough to have Rain Chain Press pick up the book and, and they wrote me and he said, you know, you really made us curious, but because you're talking about how the island is so fragile and that, you know, hurricanes might eventually destroy it. Since then, there have been several hurricanes. Do you know what's happening right now? Is it like you thought it would be? 
So at first I just kind of tried to find out on the internet and I just felt like I couldn't really get the sense of it. And I ended up going there. And all through this, as I was doing my research through the internet, this one person kept on coming up, Bradley Shanks, Bradley Shanks. He built a house there by himself. He, he used to work for his father when he was young and he had learned how to build things. And he just kind of looked up plans for a hurricane-proof house. And he stayed on the island for Michael, which was the big one. And I believe it was a Category 5. Before I actually even you know, started to try to get in touch with him, I do remember that when that hurricane started to become a threat and we were watching MSNBC and we were watching where the hurricane was going and he was headed straight for the Florida Gulf Coast right at Dog Island. And lo and behold, I heard the news anchor say, Dog Island. I was like, whoa, Dog Island? Who knows about Dog Island? What's happening in Dog Island? And they were interviewing Bradley Shanks, who had decided to stay on the island. But at the time that he had made the decision, I think that the hurricane was only a Category 3. And it had turned into a Category 5. And they were literally minutes away from hitting it, the island. And I, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but I felt he was very calm, Bradley Shanks was, when, when they asked him why he stayed on the island. And he said, well, you know, I wanted to see, I built this house, I wanted to see what would happen. But he sounded resigned to me. Like I was actually honestly afraid for him. Being the only person who stayed on the island, he was the one who documented what had happened. And interestingly enough, all of the houses either were completely wiped out or they suffered serious damage, except for his. And in fact, when I talked to him later, he said, that the only thing that he noticed, like it wasn't even scary. He said the only thing that was really strange was the sound of the wind. It sounded like a jet engine, but otherwise, like he, you know, his house was was so well built that you know he didn't notice any of this. But of course, when later he went out and he started to document all the damage in some of the interviews, he was actually being described as crying because people who live on Dog Island, as you said, it, it takes a very special kind of commitment to be there. So the people who are there are there because they're really, really committed to having that kind of life, having that kind of solitude and self-reliance. And I really respect that. They're very, very careful with the island. They also really don't like sharing about even its existence because they don't really want people to come and use it as a tourist destination because it's not that. It's, it's really a lifestyle choice. And, and I would dare say it's kind of like a difficult lifestyle choice. It's not for everyone. Tell me what you learned about yourself on this trip. I know you experienced something with the death of a loon. And a loon is a species of duck that was once popular in the area. I know you were trying to save its life, but you did watch it pass away. So what did you take away from that experience? My encounter with a loon was... I want to even say life-changing, but it definitely, in terms of the timeline on the island, it was definitely the point where there was a before and there was an after. And the before was that I was really enjoying myself on the island and seeing and appreciating the wildlife. You know, I think as human beings, we, we can really appreciate how birds and, you know, sea creatures and wild animals live their lives and so differently from the way we think about our lives. And it was a very positive experience. But I think that the encounter with the loon really drove home the clash between industrialization and nature. And I don't mean it as a cliche, but it, but it was, 
I'm, I'm always um, environmentally mindful. You know, I support environmental uh, movements and I try my best, you know, not to waste water or to recycle. But it, those things are, are not, they're very small and not really all that impactful is what I realized once I saw the loon. It made it really personal for me. I didn't even know what a loon was. A loon is a diving bird that is really kind of a most native to the waters of the Great Lakes area, Minnesota. It's a really northern diver. And not until, I want to say the 80s, scientists realized that its migratory patterns actually take it as far as the Gulf Coast of Florida. It's the, it's the southernmost point of their migratory route. And the reason we even know this is thanks to Dog Island, a natural biologist happened to be on the island when loons started washing up by the hundreds and discovered both that loons do arrive as far south as Florida, and secondly, that they were being poisoned by oil spills, but also getting caught in um, industrial fishing nets. They apparently have this ability to compress their feathers so that all of the air that in between them just get, goes out, and then they have a very slick oil that is secreted over their feathers. And so they can dive really, really deep and also can uh, hold their breath up to five minutes, oh, which is incredible. Yeah. But that loon, um, I, I was completely like, I'd never seen one. I didn't even know. I thought it was a duck until later I looked it up and saw what it was. And it, it was uh, such a beautiful bird, such a, just a amazing creature, a slick black feather, silky, this eyes like really like bejeweled is like a cliche to describe, but really they were like pieces of amber. Um, and yet like it was in so much pain. And my guess is that he must have eaten a fishing moor or something like that. Cause he didn't look like he was injured and he kept on like, just trying to, um, at first he was swimming, then the tide brought him ashore. And then he kept on trying to balance himself by planting his beak into the sand and just kind of, dragging the rest of his body away from the shore and then it would just reverse it just then he would try to go back to the sea and I we were alone on the beach we saw him my husband and I and we just didn't know what to do and and all of a sudden I wasn't just a visitor to the island anymore I was I felt like I was responsible responsible for my ignorance and for not being able to help it and responsible for not caring enough about how what we do affects all these other creatures that we share the planet with. And unfortunately, like, it's, it's really hard. I don't mean to be judgmental on anybody. I know that, like, it's hard enough to just survive and, and take care of your career and do the things that we want to do. But at the same time, to see a creature that beautiful, so adapted to the environment in ways that I can't even dream because I'm obviously really not uh, adapted to that environment, suffer so much. And my not really not being able to do anything at all to understand what's happening, to understand how to help it was a real wake up call. And then, and then from then on, I wasn't a tourist anymore. And I felt more like a, an interloper, like someone who was there, but shouldn't have been there. Because if I cannot take care of the island, then I have no business being there. If you're going to live in a place like that, I think it's really necessary to commit to being part of everything, to be part of the whole ecosystem and be a citizen of that ecosystem, a responsible citizen 
of that ecosystem. Laura, I, I think in my mind and what I'm hearing from you, you going through that experience in some way is a good thing because you're able to write about it. We're able to talk about it. You're able to tell that message. And I think that is equally as important that you can take your craft of writing and send that message out to the masses. So it's not like you didn't belong. You're, you're relaying a message of sorts is what I'm interpreting from it. Well, thank you. I mean, I do think that it's a, you know, it's one of the many things that we're ignorant about and don't know about. And I think that for me now, loons have a very special meaning and I'm sure that I will carry that for the rest of my life. And, and I do hope that people will take that away at least. The essay I wrote about the loon was the first one that I really worked on and, and was able to publish with a journal. And it's heartbreaking that some of the rejections that I got at first were, we don't understand why the narrator cares so much about this bird. So what do you think the future holds for Dog Island? I, I want to say it's uncertain. But one thing that I'm really heartened by is the fact that the Nature Preserve owns most of it. The residents are very responsible in terms of like, they don't want to develop it. They just want to have a certain kind of lifestyle there. There have been a lot of shipwrecks uncovered because of the last hurricane. And so the the University of Florida is doing a project where they're trying to date all of the shipwrecks. So I am hopeful that there are good caretakers for that island. But in the larger scheme of things, I think that we can't be blind to what's happening to our environment. And Dog Island is very vulnerable. So it, we'll see what happens. We'll see if nature uh, claims it, takes it back, yeah. or if you know the caretakers like the, the Nature Preserve and the University of Florida uh, who study the shipwrecks will be able to protect it enough that the wildlife at least is going to be able to continue to live there. And it's interesting. I think in a way it, it is paradise found and paradise lost and that whatever happens to Dog Island, we, sh- we should pay attention and see because it might very well be what happens to everyone. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you bringing this story to our listeners. Thank you for having me. That was Laura Valeri sharing her unique personal journey she encountered while visiting Dog Island. We'd like to give a shout out to the Miami Book Fair, who graciously provides us with these award-winning authors. If you'd like to hear more from Laura, go to MiamiBookFairOnline.com, where all programs are available for streaming. We'll also provide a link from our website at SoFloWeird.com. Next, it's definitely not paradise, but if you come across this small crossroads town, you'd most certainly be lost. We're talking about Two Egg in northwest Florida, not far from the Alabama and Georgia state lines. Yeah, I said Two Egg. To clarify how it got its name, we open the pages of Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. Unscrambling the town name of Two Egg. The most stolen city sign in Florida is not the one for Orlando or Miami. It's the sign for the town of Two Egg, a pleasant rural community in Jackson County. This sign was stolen so many times that the highway department had to use extra bolts to affix it to the frame. But this did not stop the poachers. They began cutting off the pole at the base. Fed up with replacing the sign, the state eventually moved it closer to town so folks could keep an eye on it. The unusual name has put Two Egg in the pages of several national and regional publications, including a 1982 mention in National Geographic. 
It's even found its way into a couple of television travel documentaries. But please note, two egg is really two eggs times one. In other words, there's no S. It's just plain two egg. Local residents are fond of saying, if you blink, you'll miss two egg. When Weird Florida visited, local two-eggian Nell King was gracious enough to talk about the town's history. Nell operates the Lawrence Grocery, a nostalgic general store with two gas pumps. It's the kind of down-south store where you feel a little sacrilegious if you don't buy yourself a moon pie. Across the street is another old store, which has been closed for so many years that the gas pump is still stuck on 29 cents a gallon. This is the middle of downtown Two-Egg, Florida. Our main purpose for coming to town was to find out how Two-Egg got its name. Well, there's several stories about where the name Two-Egg came from, explained Nell King, who is the unofficial tourist bureau for Two-Egg. Originally, this place was called Allison, a sawmill town back in the 1800s. One theory is that somebody dropped two eggs in the road and changed the name. Another story was that the first thing sold at the old country store was two eggs. And yet there's another one about a woman sending a child to the store with two eggs to trade for a weasel of snuff. But the one thing that is best accepted is about a man named Will Williams. He had 57 children by three wives, or 56 or 46, depending on the story. Mr. Williams had even more chickens than he did children. This was during hard times, when money was short, and Mr. Williams would send his kids down to the store with eggs to barter for something. One day, a traveling salesman was in the store and saw the children trade two eggs for candy. The salesman said, well, we'll just call this place Two Egg. That is the most accepted story about how the town got its name. There are plenty of other theories to go around. But if you visit Two Egg, please don't steal their sign. Instead, buy a moon pie and a genuine Two Egg souvenir at the general store. In addition to how the town got its name, I found at least two local legends involving Two Egg, Florida. One has to do with a female ghost who hangs around nearby Bellamy Bridge. The legend says her bridal gown caught fire on her wedding day and she died. Her ghost still wanders the area looking for the husband she almost had. Some have proclaimed Bellany Bridge to be the most haunted spot in Florida. The other involves a Bigfoot sighting. Several folks claim to have seen this creature walking and running in the swamps and woods on two legs, and they call it the Two-Egg Stump Jumper. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and Lisa Pally, publicist for the Miami Book Fair. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.